Okay, let's get into Nehemiah. Uh, we've been in this series called Rebuilding Your Broken World. Uh, I think this is week five or six. And uh, we're going to uh, just dig into God's word in chapter six today. But uh, let's pray. Let's ask God's uh, spirit to help us. Today's is a, a tricky subject, as last week's was as well. Um, but I really, I just, I'm so... I'm so concerned to be helpful today. I'm so um, determined to speak practically, but to speak with grace and with conviction. And, uh, and I need the Holy Spirit's help. So Holy Spirit, would you take what I say today and help it not to be too harsh or help it not to be too light? Um, help it to be effective in helping us to live lives which steward what you have given us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I was reading this week about a, a, an elderly lady who, as it was coming closer to Christmas, she realized it was getting more and more difficult for her to get out and get presents, gifts for her children and her grandchildren. And so what she decided to do was to buy cards and to write checks and to send them all money and so that they could buy their own gifts which seemed like a very good idea and so she went out and she bought cards and she wrote them all a little personal note and then at the bottom of all of them uh, of all the cards she just wrote buy your own present this year and uh, and she sent them off thinking oh they'll get the check and it'll all be good and hopefully that'll be a good substitute for the gifts I would normally get them and she didn't hear much over Christmas and then January she was cleaning around the house and she opened a drawer and she discovered all the checks that she was meant to send out. And she was absolutely horrified because what she had just written to her children and grandchildren in a card was, get your own present this year. And that's an example of someone who was rude or came across as rude, came across as mean, but actually didn't do it deliberately. It wasn't intentional. And we all know people like that, and we all do things like that, where there's something that we, we read or we hear about, and we think, goodness, that's not nice, or that's rude, or we get offended. But then when we get more information, when we understand the context, when we understand the circumstances, when we, when we understand what's going on, we realize it wasn't mean, it wasn't intentional, it was a harmless mistake. Maybe we misinterpreted something, maybe we picked something up wrong, maybe we misread something. So we, we just let it go, we, we don't hold it against them. However, as we've been journeying through, the, journeying through this series in Nehemiah, we've seen that there's also another category of people. And those are people who are mean. Those are people who are nasty. Those are people who will oppose the work of God. Those are people who, um, at every opportunity, will seek to undermine and diminish uh, God and God's people. Problem people, difficult people, not good people. Not that any of us are good, but there's some people who are really not good. There's some people who make it their mission in life to undermine and demean and to, uh, to, 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 to oppose the work of God and God's people. And to do that, they lie, they deceive, they manipulate, they gossip and they slander and they don't stop. In fact, they tend to escalate. And it's not a one-off incident like this little granny here. It's not a, an, a, an isolated incident. This is something that's consistent. It's something that doesn't change. There's some character defect. There's something inside them that, that they're just not good or healthy to be around. And we've all met some of those people. We've all been around some people like that, that, that no matter how much time you give them, there's just something within them that just doesn't seem right. 
And in this book of Nehemiah, two names keep coming up again, Sambalat and Tobiah. As Nehemiah and the Jewish people begin this overwhelming and monumental task of rebuilding the walls and gates of Jerusalem, constantly these two people come against the work of God, Sanballat and Tobiah. It began in chapter 2 where we read that they were very much disturbed when the work began because they wanted Jerusalem to be vulnerable. They wanted to maintain their power and they didn't want anything to change. And then we get to chapter four and as the work begins, they move from being disturbed to getting angry and they begin to intensify and increase their opposition with insults and mocking because that's what people like this do when they don't get their own way. They escalate, they get angrier, they get meaner, they get nastier. We read when Sinbalat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, in other words, he had a crowd around him, he had spectators, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in the day? Can they bring the stones back to life from these heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they're building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their walls of stones. And so their comments are designed to discourage, to demean, and to dent the confidence of those who are doing the work. And if you've ever spoken to somebody who's been in an abusive relationship, they have lived under those sort of comments for many years. Whether they're still in it now or they're out of it, they will have lived under demeaning comments Comments that are designed to wear them down. Comments that are designed to humiliate them. Comments that are designed to make them feel small, to make them feel weak, to make them feel inadequate, to make them feel worthless. Constant criticism. Telling them how pitiful they are, that they're nobody, that they're nothing, that they're a waste of space. And the whole point is to have them become dependent on the abuser it's to make them feel like they're nothing without this person and it's horrible to watch and I'm sure many of you have known people some of you have maybe been in that situation and when the person tries to leave when they try to break free of the control it's when things can get especially nasty and again that's what we see here as the walls are rebuilt Look at what we read in verses 7 and 8. When Sambala, Tobiah, and the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted to come together and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. So it moves from just being disturbed to words and comments to actions to overt aggression, aggression and then even physical violence and like I say it's horrible when you see this happen to people in real life how it dents their confidence even when they get out of that abusive situation it can take years for their confidence and their dignity and their self-esteem to be built up and that's what we're going to see today in chapter six is that these sort of people don't just go away the sort of people that we're talking about the Tobias and the Sanballats they don't just go away. We can wait and wait, hoping they'll change, but typically these sort of people just don't change their ways. Now, we do know that the Holy Spirit can do a great work, and with deep repentance, people can change. We always believe that even the hardest heart can be changed. But what I'm talking about is the other people who that doesn't happen to. 
that we give them chance after chance and they appear to change for a little while, but then they go back to their old ways. They promise to change, they're sweet and nice for a week or two, but ultimately what's inside them will keep spilling out. I was, uh, just this morning I decided to Google how many, what percentage of the population are sociopaths or psychopaths? Because that's what I do for you on a Sunday morning. Um, And this is for free. One to four percent of the population, they say, which means about eight to ten people in here. Um, <laughs> everybody except in here, um, because we've got a radar at the door. But one to four percent of people are sociopaths or psychopaths out there. Sorry to tell you, but there's people out there who are a little bit nuts, who are a little bit dangerous, who are a little bit deranged. And unfortunately, we will all encounter them at some stage or another. People who are mean, manipulative damaging, predatory, narcissistic, destructive. You will meet them in relationships. You'll meet them in work. Anybody ever met? Don't put up your hand. Anybody ever met somebody in work who's like that? You'll meet them in your family. In-laws. Not mine, obviously. Thank the Lord for the time gap in Australia. They're there at the minute. We can edit that, Mal. Just those three seconds. Let's get those cut out. Um, the outlaws, though, um, the, you know, we, we meet them in, in, in church. We meet them in all sorts of places. And what do we do about them? Because how do we respond as Christians? Aren't we supposed to love everybody? Aren't we supposed to be kind? Aren't we supposed to open our lives and our homes and, and just open arms to everybody? Aren't we supposed to be welcoming to everybody no matter what they do or how they treat us or other And I think Nehemiah can be really helpful here for us because it's such a practical book. You know, there is a spiritual element. We've talked about how Nehemiah represents the Holy Spirit. He comes in and rebuilds our broken lives. But it's also an incredibly practical book about how we relate to one another, about how we rebuild things, about how how, how leadership works, and about how we deal with problem people, how we deal with difficult people. And so I want to do this book justice and I want to simply take the text as it is without over spiritualizing it and actually go through this in chapter 6 and see how do we deal with problem difficult people and I want to be really practical and for some of you this will be incredibly liberating this will be helpful this will help you make sense of some things and this will bring freedom into your life this week and for some of you you will be disgusted and you will call me unloving and unkind and unchristian and that's okay that's okay. I'm well interested because I've watched, I've been a Christian for 33 years. I've been around church for all of those years and I've been in leadership for 16. And if I had learned some of this stuff a long time ago, I would have saved myself and our family a lot of hurt and a lot of heartache and I would have saved other people. I have never taught some of this stuff ever uh, in church. And I want to help you And I want to be beneficial to you. And even if it's not for you today, at some stage in the future, you will meet a Tobiah or a Sambalat and you will go, where was that sermon that Craig preached in 2023? And hopefully then it will be helpful. So let's get into chapter 6. When word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem and the Arab and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent me this message. Come let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. 
So the wall is complete. The wall is finished. Remember, it was halfway back in chapter 4. It's now complete. It's finished. There's not a gap left in it, but there's doors still to be set in place. There's gates still to be set in place. So they're still vulnerable. Enemies can still come in. But the work is almost done. And look what happens as they get close to the end. Symbolic and Geshem say, come let us meet together. Come let us meet together. They can see that all of the stuff that they have done so far hasn't worked, and so they change tactics. And this sounds like a very reasonable request. It sounds like a very uh, harmless invitation. Why don't we just sit down? Let's see, can we iron things out? You know, we don't need all this tension. We don't need all this hostility. Let's have a chat. Let's talk it through. Maybe we can, maybe we can compromise. And where they want to hold this wee meeting is fascinating. It's in the plain of Ono, which is exactly halfway between Jerusalem, where Nehemiah was, and Samaria, where Sambalat was. In other words, they're saying, why don't we meet halfway? Why don't we compromise? Why don't we meet in the middle somewhere? And of course, there are times when we should sit down and talk things through. We talked about that last week. Last week's whole message was about that. About when we have a problem with someone, we go to them. If it's a big enough problem, and we sit down and we talk about it and we reconcile and we own and we repent and we say we're sorry and, and we admit it and, and we want to live in unity as God's people. And so there's absolutely, I'd say 95% of disagreements, that's what we do. And hopefully that should sort things out. But some ballot is not one of those 95%. He's one of the 1% to 4% that we talked about earlier that are walking among us, but not in here. Uh, he is, he's one of those people that you can't reason with. He's one of those people that you cannot find common ground with. How do I know this? Because I look at his history. I look at everything he has done so far in this book, and there is nothing in this book that indicates that he has any good intentions towards Nehemiah or God's people. And I think that's important for us to do with people as we look at their history. When we're not sure, we go, well, in the time that I've known them, have they shown that they're for me or against me? Have they been kind to me or have they been constantly mean to me? Have they sought to undermine me? You see, Jesus says you will know a tree by their fruit. He says a good tree can't bear bad fruit and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. And what we want to do when we're not sure about somebody is go look at the fruit of their lives. What is there about them that would make me go, this is worthwhile meeting with them? Because his words sound harmless and appealing. Let's just have a chat. But his actions show that his heart is not really there. That's not his intention. Because when you look at his history, he has only sought to undermine the work of God. And lastly here, before we move on, how funny is the name of the place that Zambalat suggests they meet? Come let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of... Oh no. <laughs> Seriously, like you can't make this stuff up. I love the Bible. You know, people say the Bible's boring. The Bible's not boring. You're boring. Um, like, like let's, meet, let's meet in Ono. Let's meet in Ono. There are some places and some people that even their name tells you what you should do with them. You know what I mean? There are some places and some people that, that you just go, oh no. Oh no. Like it's screaming about what you should do. Remember, you know, it would be like somebody saying, let's meet in Death Valley. Let's meet in Bloodland. Let's meet in Lurgan. You know, there's some places that you just stay away from. 
I remember years ago when I, uh, before I was in, 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 in full-time ministry, I worked in sales and marketing, and we were over in Birmingham at, I think it was NEC, at a big exhibition there, and our hotel was directly across from a place, and it was called something like this, Naughty and Nice Gentleman's Club. Okay, and uh, I remember one night we got to know some of the other guys at the stands around us at the NEC, and one night we were all staying in the one hotel. They said, right, why don't we all go across here and relax and have a beer after work? Let's go across to Naughty and Nice. And I knew there was nothing nice or nothing gentlemanly about that place, no matter what the name was called. And I said, oh no, oh no. I just I politely refused. And they said, why not? And I said, I'm just not going there. And, and honestly, I remember even at the time, I probably wasn't walking particularly closely with the Lord. I remember at the time thinking, if Jesus comes back, I don't want to be in there. <laughs> Quite honestly. And that's a good thing to think sometimes. If Jesus were to return, would I want him to find me doing that? Would I want him to find me in that place? And I, and I said no, because the name itself and everything about it said that it wasn't a good idea. I couldn't even say I was there to evangelize if Jesus came back. You know what I mean? There was no excuse. There's some places that you just go, oh no. Back to the text. Nehemiah gets this apparently innocent offer. Let's meet an oh no for a chat. And his response is, oh no. Look at what we read. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying out a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent the same message. And each time... I gave them the same answer. So Nehemiah isn't gullible. He's no fool. He sees right, pl- right through their plots and their schemes and their, their plans. He knows their intent is always the same. It's to harm. It's to hurt. That's what they do. That's all they've ever done. He's not naive. He's not stupid. It would also mean traveling about 25 miles. He would have to travel for a day and it would take a day to go back, come back. But he probably wouldn't come back. That's the point. They're trying to get him away from Jerusalem, trying to lure him away from his people. He would probably never return and they would just say, I don't know what happened to him. He never showed up. Because the enemy likes to attack the leader because he knows if he attacks the leader, the people then will be discouraged and not finish the work. But look at Nehemiah's response. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? I love that. You know, it sounds somewhat arrogant and maybe even boastful. I am carrying on a great work. I am doing a great work, but it's not. It's confidence in knowing that any work for God is a great work. Because any work for God is work for a great God, and therefore it's a great work. Any work that honors and glorifies God is a great work. It has significance and importance attached to it. Our welcome team are doing a great work. Our kids team are doing a great work. Our sound and visual team are doing a great work. Our, 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 our worship team are doing a great work. I am doing a great work. Not because necessarily this is a great sermon, but because it's God's word. And when God's word is preached, it's a great work. And whenever you go into work tomorrow, whether it be in an office or a factory, or a classroom or, or, or looking after an elderly parent or as a carer or whatever that is, I want to tell you, you are doing a great work if you're doing it unto the Lord. Because anything done for the glory of God, anything done where you serve people is a great work. 
It may not look great, it may not feel great always, but if you're doing it with a heart that you want to please and obey and honor God in your work, it is a great work. And so Nehemiah says, oh no, I am not stopping this to go down to you. I am not descending to your level because I'm up here doing a great work. This is too important. This is my priority. This is my focus, my time and my attention. So will I go? Oh no. Look at what we read next. Four times they sent me the same message. And each time I gave them the same answer, they're persistent, aren't they? Will you come down? No. 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 Never, 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 never. I will not go down. Only a certain age group got that. To put this into a spiritual context, 1985, Um, November. Uh, I was there. Sorry. Stick to the text, Greg. The devil doesn't give up. The devil's persistent. He doesn't just give one temptation and go, well, you didn't give in to that. He doesn't just entice you once and when you when you resist. The devil keeps putting things in front of you. The devil keeps tempting you. He keeps enticing you. He keeps trying to lure you. And his intent is always the same. It's to wear you down. It's to make you think life would be easier if I just given, if I just gave up, if I just went along with it. And sometimes it's not just temptation, sometimes it's other things, it's actual events, it can be work problems and health problems and relationships and it's just constant and it's relentless and he's just trying to wear you down so that you become so weary that you just give up. You lose your resolve. You know, sometimes it's easier to say yes rather than no. I'll glance at it, but I won't look at it for too long. I'll text them, but I won't meet up with them. I'll meet up with them, but I won't do anything. I'll just borrow it, but I'll I'll give it back. I love Nehemiah. It says, four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same reply. No, 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 no. His principles are stronger than their pressure. You know, it's easy to have principles until those principles come under pressure. It's easy to have convictions until those convictions are opposed. And then we see what we really think and what we really believe. And we've seen that in the Church of England this week. That a few years ago, everybody had these convictions about marriage. But the pressure of culture, the pressure of society, the pressure of politicians, the pressure of celebrities has come. And so many of them have caved because they weren't a conviction. They were a convenience. And it's only when your priorities and your principles come under pressure that you actually see how much do you really believe them. You know, even just a personal example, and and please, I'm not trying to make a point here at all. I'm just, two years ago at this time, we were told to close And I had a deep conviction that we should stay open. It wasn't illegal to stay open. We were going to do it safely. We were going to do it carefully. But I had a deep conviction that the church should stay open. And I came under pressure from my governing authorities. I came under pressure from people. I got some nasty comments from other clergy. I had the police called three times. 
Now, my resolve was I would rather not do this job if I give in. I actually came to that conclusion. And sometimes we have to just draw a line and go, I am so convinced and convicted about this that I would rather walk away than go along with this. And I'm not saying everyone had to agree with that. I'm saying that was my conviction. You will have your own convictions about certain things. But we all need certain lines that we will not cross. No matter how much pressure, no matter how constant the, 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 the barrage of, 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 of um, manipulation and propaganda is to conform to the culture. We all need certain lines where we just go, I will not cross this line. And for you, that will be different. It might be in the workplace, it might be at home, it might be in your morality, whatever that is. We all need to have convictions, but those things will come under pressure. I want to tell you, in today's culture, what you believe in this book will come under pressure. Your convictions about the word of God, about the way God wants us to live, they will come under increasing pressure. And it is only as they come under pressure that you will actually realise, do I really believe this or do I only believe it when it's convenient for me to do so? And some of us need to get really good at saying the word no. Let's try it together after three. One, two, three. No. Let's try it one more time. One, two, three. No. Some of us need to get much better at saying that. Now, all of us have done this. We've, we've said yes when we wanted to say no. And we've regretted it later. Somebody asks you to do something and you say yes and then you go, why did I say yes? I really didn't want to go there. I didn't want to do this. And we become angry and we start trying to figure out how to get out of it and we become resentful. And it's our own fault because we've never learned to say no. Now, I'm not talking about becoming a negative person. I'm not talking just about, like, becoming a no person anytime anyone, no. You know, I'm not telling you to go out of here, no. I'm not doing it, you know, will you serve the tea and coffee team? No. Uh, that's definitely not what I'm saying. We should help people, okay? Galatians 6 says, bear one another's burdens. There are times when we should be inconvenienced and when we should say yes because it's the right thing to do. And as Christians, that is what we should do. So please don't start saying no to everyone and tell them Craig said to do that. But I'm talking about those situations where there's just nothing good to come from saying yes. Where to say yes betrays your convictions. When to say yes goes against the word of God. When to say yes goes against something that you'd already decided in your heart was a no. Where you meet someone for coffee every week and it drains the absolute life out of you. But you just keep saying yes. And you dread it but you just keep doing it. Where you go on numerous dates with somebody, even though there's zero chance that things will develop any further, but you don't want to hurt his feelings or her feelings. When you're at somebody's back and call and they constantly tick, 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 but they never show any appreciation. When somebody in work keeps giving you their stuff to do because they're lazy or they're just not able to, do, and, you, and you keep taking it because you feel it's the right thing to do, but then they're clearing off at five o'clock and you're there at seven o'clock and you're missing dinner with your family. When you sign up for something or join something and it's the last thing you want to do, but you're afraid of offending somebody. Let's go deeper. When somebody's constantly rude or nasty, but you still give them time or space in your life. 
When somebody shows that they're deceitful and can't be trusted, but you never confront or challenge their behavior. When somebody's abusive or harmful and you still give them access to your life. This is where boundaries come in. And I'm going to talk for about five, ten minutes about boundaries and then we're done, okay? I want to talk to you about boundaries because Nehemiah is all about rebuilding the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. And walls and gates around a city are boundaries. And here's what boundaries are designed to do. They let the good in and they keep the bad out. They let the good in and they keep the bad out. And all of us need walls and gates in our lives. We need to have boundaries in our lives that let the good in and keep the bad out. And there's a difference between walls and gates. A wall is an immovable boundary. It never changes. It's solid. It's firm. It never never shifts. And there are certain boundaries in our lives that are just a no. There are certain times... And certain things in our lives that we don't need to pray about it, we don't need to think about it, we don't need to talk to somebody else about it. We just know it's a no. It's wrong, it's contrary to the word of God, it's immoral, it's just not right, and we don't give it an inch. There are certain things that are not movable at all. They're not negotiable, they're not compromisable. There are certain things that we just say no to in our lives. I will not do that because it is not what God would want me to do. It's a solid no. That's the walls. Gates are a bit different. See, a gate can be open. A gate can be closed. A gate can be a wee bit open. It can be a little bit open. It can be a big bit open, depending on the context, depending on the time, depending on the circumstances. And that's the areas where we struggle, where it's not just black and white, where it's a little bit more grey, where we're not completely sure, where it's, it depends on the time and the context and what's going on, and, and, we're, and, and there's all sorts of different factors involved, and where things and situations and people aren't, uh, aren't so bad, but we're just not sure, and, and it's not an immediate or an obvious yes or no. Do we let them in? Do we keep them out? That's where we need to learn some boundaries. And boundaries are really about learning when to open the gate and when to close the gate. And how much to keep it open and how much to keep it closed. It's about learning to say yes and no. And people will say, isn't that unloving? And I get that. I totally get that. And we never want to be unloving as Christians. But what I've discovered is Jesus had boundaries. Jesus had boundaries. We read in the Bible that Jesus, it says he entrusted himself to no man because he knew what was in the heart of man. We read at times that the disciples said, will you come and do this? Everybody wants you to do this. And Jesus says, let's just keep moving. Even though there was need, even though there were sick people, even though there were people lined up to be healed, Jesus wasn't driven by need. He was driven by purpose. There were times when the crowds were waiting for him and it says he withdrew to a lonely place to pray. In Luke 5, I think it is, or Mark 5, he goes in to pray for the centurion's daughter. She's dead. And he walks into the room and he says, the little girl isn't dead. She's just sleeping. And it says, they all laugh at him. And it says, he put them out of the room. He goes into a house where there's relatives and family and he says, get out. That's rude. At least we would think it's rude. But Jesus knew that he had to put a boundary around that room because there was something more important in that situation than people being happy with him. And that was this little girl's life. And in such an atmosphere of unbelief, the little girl was going to die. 
Jesus had boundaries. He often walked away from people. He went to his hometown and they dishonored him. And it says he just left. He left that place because it was a place of dishonor. And Jesus wasn't willing to be in a place where he was constantly dishonored. He was driven by purpose and not by need. It actually says that the son can do nothing by himself. He only does what he sees his father doing. So his purpose determined his boundaries. Now Jesus didn't go around being rude. He says, I am gentle and humble in heart. The fruit of the Spirit include love, patience, kindness and gentleness. So there, there are, the vast majority of the time our attitude is love, our attitude is welcome, our attitude is open door, open gate. But there are times when we must be direct, when we must be firm, when we must close some people out when we must put up walls and gates because boundaries protect God's entrustment. Just the other day, our little boy Elijah, who's 10, said, Daddy, can I go up the hill to play? And I said, You can go up the hill, but you can't go any further than the green. Was I being mean or nasty by putting a boundary in place? No, I was trying to protect my son. Let's take a different analogy a sports game. Let's use rugby for an example. There's boundaries in rugby. There's lines around the field. Imagine if everybody just went, this is too restrictive. We don't like these lines. Let's just, you know, get rid of them all. Let's have a free-for-all. The game would descend into chaos. And a life without boundaries becomes chaotic. It's all over the place. It's pulled this way and that way. It's disordered and it's frustrated. And it's, it's, it's ineffective because we need boundaries in our lives. Boundaries protect what God has entrusted to us. Proverbs 25 says this, like a city whose walls are broken is a person who lacks self-control. Boundaries protect what God has placed within us. He has given you gifts. He has given you talents. He has given you calling. He has given you certain things to do. But if you're pulled in this way and that way and this way and that way, according to people's whims and desires and every need, you will never fulfill the will of God for your life. And one day we're going to stand before him and he's going to say, what did you do with what I give you? The parable of the talents talks about that. And it won't be, well, I did this. You know, what did you do? Did you do what I called you to do? Boundaries help define what's your responsibility. That's why your property has boundary lines. And if your neighbor crosses your boundary lines and starts building in your land, you let them know. Because there's a boundary line there. Boundaries define what's my responsibility and what's your responsibility. And that means that I don't have to be guilty about something that's absolutely not my responsibility. Because it's not within my boundary line. It actually helps us manage expectation. If it's not my responsibility, you shouldn't be upset if I don't give my time or attention. And that is why we we don't put boundaries in place. We don't want to offend people. We don't want to upset people. We don't want people to be annoyed with us. Because most of us at heart are people pleasers. We want people to like us. We want people to think good things about us. We want people to say, aren't they so loving? Aren't they so caring? But in my experience, the people who react most strongly when you put boundaries in place are the people who were gaining the most from you having no boundaries. 
We see that in Nehemiah, don't we? The people who react most when you start to put boundaries in place are the people who were gaining the most from you having boundaries. And they'll get angry and they'll give you the silent treatment and they'll push back against your boundaries. In extreme cases, they'll become aggressive, they'll talk about you, but don't be controlled because their response is a strong indicator that firmer boundaries were needed. And we see this for... Nehemiah says four times no. He puts up a boundary and they keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing, keeps pushing the boundary. And Symbala isn't happy, so he attempts to intimidate and manipulate Nehemiah into doing what he wants. Look at this. The fifth time Symbala sent his aid to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, so it must be if Geshem says it, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt and therefore... You're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come let us meet together. Notice it says it was an unsealed letter. In other words, it was intended that this letter would get read by everybody. That the false news, the fake news would spread, that this misinformation would start to get around. Today it would be done online, it would be done on Facebook, it would be done on Twitter, it would normally be anonymous accounts, nameless, faceless. What's the point? He's trying to spread malicious rumours to put pressure on Nehemiah to do the thing that Nehemiah has already said no four times to do. He's trying to put pressure on him, the king will hear about this, that you're trying to stage a revolt, you're trying to stage an insurrection. And we know what this king is like. Like your head and your body will be separated if the king hears about this. So well, I'm trying to give you a chance. Why don't you come and just talk to me? He's trying to put pressure. He's trying to manipulate. He's undermining. And he's trying to get Nehemiah to go, okay, okay, because we want to protect our reputation. When people tell lies about us, when people say false things about us, we want, to, we want everybody to know the truth. We want people to think well of us. When people... Spread things I've heard. Did you hear about Craig? Did you hear about what happened? No, no. Well, I, I mean, I didn't see it directly, but such and such. Her sister works with a cousin. We've all heard those, haven't we? You know, did you hear such? Well, well no, but a, a girl I work with, her friend works with a guy in Belfast who was at a, a pub the other night, and he met a guy in the toilet, and he said this. So it must be true, because there's no smoke without fire. We've all had that. That's the sort of thing that's going on here. He's trying to pressure and intimidate and manipulate Nehemiah into going against his principles. I remember when I started in Lurgan, I'd only a year and a half as a curate with Morris Elliott, but it was, I got so much wisdom from him. I remember one day I went to Morris quite early on and I said, Morris, you know, everybody's saying, and Morris just went, who? And I went, everybody's saying, and Morris went, who? And I told him it was two ladies who were friends. And Morris said to me that day, he said, Craig, have you ever come to me and say, everybody's saying, I will always ask you who? Because it's normally two people who are friends who are annoyed about something. And if you won't give the name, ignore it. That was really, really helpful wisdom. It's not to say you dismiss everybody, but everybody normally isn't everybody. It's just a few vocal people. 
Nehemiah doesn't stress. He doesn't lose sleep. He doesn't spend three weeks defending himself, going around telling everyone the truth. Look at what he does. Verses 8 and 9, and we are finishing. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head, or as we'd say, you're talking out of your backside. I mean, that is literally exactly, that's the message translation. You're talking out of your backside. And then he knows why. He says, they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. He doesn't take the bait. He doesn't get distracted or deterred. He knows his own heart. He knows his own motivation. He knows that this isn't true. And so he stays focused on the task at hand. And he says, God, will you give me this strength? He prays to God, strengthen my hands. I want to keep on doing what you have called me to do. Christians, church, your job is not to keep everyone happy. You follow a saviour who was nailed to a cross because he wouldn't do what everybody wanted him to do. His own people turned against him because he wouldn't be the sort of Messiah that they wanted him to be. You have been called by God, chosen by God to fulfil his purpose here on earth, but you will never do that if you do what everybody wants you to do. Because you'll be pulled in every direction, by every whim and every demand. And you will stand before God one day and he will say, you never fulfilled my purpose, but you fulfilled 47 other people's purposes for your life. The Apostle Paul said this in Galatians, if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. We're out of time. In the newsletter this week, I will give some practical wisdom around how do you actually implement this. But let me give the first one, because I think this is important. Start slowly, okay? Don't go out of here today and start building walls and gates with every relationship in your life. Identify one or two things that maybe just need to change. Instead of meeting somebody every Friday, make it every other Friday. Start to put up little boundaries that protect you, protect your well-being, protect your health because boundaries create freedom they stop us being pushed and pulled around by people they stop resentment they stop exhaustion and they stop burnout and this was a hard-learned lesson for me some of you know that in 2015 I was burned out and diagnosed with depression from burnout and I, I shouldn't have been surprised because I had no boundaries I'd been in ministry for 10 years and I had no boundaries whatsoever. And the need was always greater than my capacity to fulfill that need. But I felt as a minister, as a Christian, my job was to keep everybody happy. And so I was working 80, 100 hours a week, every week for 10 years. If somebody wanted to see me, even if they weren't part of the church, I would make time for them. Because people talked about how great Craig will always make time. Isn't it wonderful? We saw people get saved. It was wonderful. Our church was growing. Our church was thriving. It was wonderful. Meanwhile, our marriage was suffering and I wasn't spending time with our newborn son who was born our first year in Dublin. I don't remember much about the early years of his life. But the church thought I was wonderful and it nearly took me completely out of ministry. So when I talk about boundaries today, I'm talking from someone who had absolutely no boundaries. And maybe I've gone too far the other way now. And maybe there's somewhere in the middle. But what I am saying is this, that boundaries have created health in my life. Boundaries have created health in our marriage, in our family, in my relationship with my son. 
Boundaries have made ministry a joy and not a burden. Boundaries have made me more effective. And boundaries have meant that I will still be here in 10 years doing what God has called me to do. Not necessarily here, but doing what God has called me to do on earth. Because quite honestly, without boundaries, I'm not sure I was going to be. So when I'm speaking to you about boundaries, I'm speaking about something really personal because I struggled from with not having boundaries for years. And boundaries have created health and wholeness in our life, in our family, in our marriage. And so can I encourage you to look at your life and not go overboard, but just make one or two small changes. And this finished 15, 16. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. The wall was completed in 52 days. 52 days. These walls that had been in ruins for 140 something years, in 52 days, there's an acceleration and they are rebuilt. Why? Because God helped them. Of course, God gave them strength and strategies and wisdom and energy for the task that seemed impossible. But notice it says God helped them. It doesn't say God built the walls. God helped them to build the walls. God didn't do it. The people did it. In 52 days, because God helped them and because they were focused and determined and hardworking and courageous and because they had boundaries. They wouldn't be distracted or deterred or discouraged by anything or anyone that wasn't God's purpose for them that season. And God wants to rebuild the broken places in our lives. And God wants to restore the broken places in our community. And he will help us. But those broken places can't be rebuilt and restored if we don't have boundaries. Because without boundaries, people and things and situations will keep coming in and tearing down the work of God. This isn't about being unloving. Please let me tell you that again and again. This is not about not loving people. This is about loving God, loving others, loving your family, and loving yourself and your own health enough that you give your time and your attention and your resources and your focus to what matters most. And doing it all for the glory of God. And that might mean that some other things and some other people might need to take up a different place and space in your life. Because you're focused on doing what God has called you to do. And that's okay. That's okay. Because ultimately when you stand before God, you don't need them to say, well done, good and people pleasing one. It was good and faithful one. You were faithful to what I called you to do.